You're listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, and I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. Superpower Curiosity Season 1 is all about divisions and how to get past them. Richard writes all about this in his book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. For this episode, The Liberating Power of Curiosity, Richard reads an excerpt from It's a Freaking Mess. The Liberating Power of Curiosity Curiosity is an innate feature of being human. Curiosity is the impulse that delights a baby in the unbridled exploration of touch and taste and scent. It is the drive to discover. It is the quest to question why until we reach a satisfying answer or a deeper question. It is a key to learning with joy. Great leaps forward in human understanding from medicine to motor vehicles, from molecular structure to the motion of planets, have occurred as the result of people's curiosity. Isaac Newton, Marie Curie and Albert Einstein were famously curious about this world and how it works. The important thing is not to stop questioning, Einstein said. Never lose a holy curiosity. Einstein, in fact, claimed that he had no special talents, but that he was passionately curious. The statesman and philanthropist Bernard Baruch wrote of Newton, Millions saw the apple fall, but Newton asked why. Why, one might ask, doesn't the apple fall sideways? Conventional understanding might reply, well, that's just how things are. Things fall downward. Don't need to question that. And curiosity asks, but why? The essence of curiosity is open-mindedness, being willing to question and being willing to admit we don't know the answer. Curiosity helps us challenge our own assumptions about the world and other people. I wonder if that's really true. Could there be another explanation? Because curiosity is by nature open and non-judgmental, it is a wonderful antidote to otherizing. Curiosity stays in the realm of objectivity. It is a fascination with what might be, not a fastening to a cause. Curiosity evaporates fixed judgments. It delights in observing, wondering, discovering, playing with the multiple strands of possibility. Compare, for example, the following statements of curiosity and judgment. Situation. Responding to an idea one disagrees with. Statement of curiosity. I wonder why she thinks that. Statement of judgment. She's an idiot. Situation. Responding to an action one disagrees with. Statement of curiosity. I wonder why he does that. Statement of judgment. He's an idiot. Situation. Responding to a political act of violence that kills innocent people. Statement of curiosity. I wonder why they are so angry. Statement of judgment. They're just terrorists. They should be exterminated.
In each situation, curiosity leads to the possibility of greater understanding, and in some cases, dialogue. While judgment is a closed declaration of derision and separation, judgment turns the judged into an inferior other, someone unworthy of further consideration. Curiosity opens, judgment shuts. In addition to opening our minds, curiosity also helps us converse with others with greater openness. Books on the art of conversation explain that one of the key skills in overcoming awkwardness, shyness, or self-absorption is to be genuinely curious about the other person, to be interested in why he thinks as he does, why she made those particular choices. Despite the great benefits of curiosity, which has enabled every human advance in understanding, this quality is not universally valued. In fact, it's received some pretty bad press. Some people confuse curiosity with prying, for example, delving into the personal lives of the rich and famous. We are told that curiosity killed the cat, but the name of that cat was ignorance. The idea that curiosity killed the cat was used to warn the curious about the dangers of exploration. But exploration requires searching, not recklessness. Perhaps the real danger of curiosity is that it can examine beliefs that people hold as absolute truth, and this can create an angry reaction. Some are afraid that curiosity may question social views and party lines. It knocks at the door of every box we've put someone in, and sometimes we prefer to keep those doors closed. When a curious child asks, why? But why? Do her parents get annoyed, or do they celebrate the fact that her curiosity is still alive? For many different reasons, children often lose their natural curiosity, and learn that it is more cool to appear disinterested, and not cool at all to be curious. Rote learning at school and hours of daily screen-watching give us ready-made input at the cost of developing our natural curiosity. Too much programmed input teaches us to be passive rather than active, and this passivity makes us more likely to be compliant consumers of cultural norms, the kind of people who will toe the party line without question. When we are actively curious, however, we develop the natural ability of the mind to think freely. And the more we exercise this mental independence, the stronger it becomes. Even if we've lost some of our natural curiosity, we can regain it. On the internet, if you search for curiosity, there's plenty of advice on how to enjoy the games of questioning and discovery. The main requirement is the wish to explore and some determination to follow through. If we want to develop our curiosity, it is our prerogative. I'm going to give two examples of curiosity. Both are on the subject of trying to understand intense anger. The first is, why are the terrorists so angry? And the second, why are Democrats and Republicans in the US so angry with each other? Why are the terrorists so angry? After the 9-11 terrorist attack, 
there was an understandable outpouring of anger in the United States and in many other countries. Sometimes this anger was accompanied by blanket judgments about Arabs and Muslims. What if this was changed into a statement of curiosity? I wonder why these terrorists are so angry. Might this question lead to more understanding? Some might object to this line of inquiry with concerns like, isn't this unpatriotic? Shouldn't we defend our country? Doesn't trying to understand this violence make it seem like we're okay with it? Or that we should feel sorry for the perpetrators? By seeking to understand the reasons for violence, I am not suggesting that we ignore acts of violence against our country or condone such actions. On the contrary, a better understanding of cause may lead to better future policies for this country and for the world. And greater understanding may change our own violent reactive thoughts, which are unpleasant to experience and not so conducive to effective solutions. When I did research into why the terrorists are so angry, I came across a book called Destiny Disrupted, A History of the World Through Islamic Eyes, written by Tamim Ansari, an American citizen with Arab and Muslim roots. I was interested to take a look at world history from his perspective. Ansari writes in an informative and detached style, and is not shy about detailing politics and atrocities by Muslims, Christians and secular governments alike. After reading about centuries of Western domination over Arab countries, I was struck by one recent historic event. Ansari writes, matter-of-factly, about how in 1953 the US Central Intelligence Agency organized a coup in Iran. And then comments. It would be hard to overstate the feeling of betrayal this coup embedded in Iran, or the shudder of anger it sent through the Muslim world. I decided to get the Western viewpoint on this coup, and read the CIA official records that are now in the public domain. Here is how the CIA describes U.S. responsibility in the coup. Quote, the military coup that overthrew Mossadegh and his National Front cabinet was carried out under CIA direction as an act of U.S. foreign policy conceived and approved at the highest level of government. End of quote. Highest level of government? That would be President Eisenhower. It turns out that both the USA and the UK were jointly involved in a plan to change the democratic government of Iran into a dictatorship. Yet in previous years, both countries had publicly stated their support of democracy all over the world. So, what was going on? I was particularly interested in this since I was born in England and have lived in the US for the past 25 years. I found that in 1953, the US and Britain were indeed both responsible for this coup, through the secret services of CIA and MI6 respectively. The coup was against Iran's elected Prime Minister Mossadegh, who, before the coup, had been largely pro-American. Mossadegh 
did not agree to the British Anglo-Iranian oil company's sharing of oil profits. 85% for Britain's Anglo-Iranian oil company, known as AIOC, and 15% for Iran. When the AIOC would not budge, Mossadegh cancelled the lease with the AIOC and said he would nationalise Iranian oil. The British Foreign Secretary, Sir Anthony Eden, was powerless to do anything without US help. Under President Truman, the US had declined to interfere. But the Eisenhower administration was, according to The Guardian, easily persuaded by a claim from the British government not supported by credible evidence that Iran was in danger of becoming communist. While the British, through MI6, instigated the idea of the coup, the US, through the CIA, implemented it. Mossadegh was imprisoned, and absolute rule was handed over, as prearranged, to Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who had signed a treaty with the US giving an international consortium of oil corporations the task of managing Iran's oil. Pahlavi became the Shah, king, of Iran for the next 26 years. Once in power, the CIA helped train Savak, the Shah's brutal secret police. Hundreds of Iranians were killed in this coup. The anger of the people of Iran and of millions of Muslims in other Middle Eastern countries is easy to envisage. Imagine how we Americans would feel if foreign powers imprisoned our president and put their chosen dictator in power over the US so that they could extract oil from Texas on terms highly favorable to them. Imagine our reaction to our democracy being annihilated by a foreign country, a country that, at the same time, publicly proclaimed its support for democracies worldwide. And then multiply this by 26 years of rule by an unelected despotic king whose brutal secret police were trained and supported by this foreign power. How would we feel? The result of this action by America and Britain is that Muslims in general, and the Iranians in particular, could no longer trust America. They had lost trust in Britain long before this. We, the US, had put monetary gain above our own stated principles of support for democracy and respect for the sovereignty of other nations. According to the Guardian newspaper, US officials have expressed regret about the coup, though have not issued an official apology. The CIA still claims its actions were based on concern about the spread of communism. The British government has never officially acknowledged its role. The repercussions of distrust and fury with the US still reverberate today. Between Iran and the US, there has been an angry game of tit-for-tat ever since. When Iranian students took US diplomats and citizens hostage in 1979, the students demanded an apology for the 1953 coup, which the US did not give. The American public was incensed about the imprisonment of these hostages and genuinely did not know the history that had preceded it. We could not have known, for example, that while the death toll among the US hostages was zero, 
The death toll from our own government's organized coup in Iran was in the hundreds. The repercussions were not limited to Iran. The anger about this foreign intrusion reverberated throughout the Muslim world. It is this kind of anger, the Iran coup is one example of many, that eventually fueled al-Qaeda and ISIS with ready volunteers from different countries willing to die for their cause. So why are the terrorists so angry? The 1953 Iranian coup is just one line of inquiry. It's neither necessary nor realistic to know every reason, but even knowing just one reason begins to change the tone of a self-righteous narrative. Such understanding, as I mentioned, doesn't condone the violent actions of terrorists any more than it condones the 1953 violence incited by the CIA with MI6 help. But it certainly can help change our own angry reaction. And yes, such understanding could create better policies going forward. Why are Democrats and Republicans so angry? We can use the same process of curiosity to help understand the angry words and actions of politicians and their followers. Why are they so upset? Why are they so angry? Perhaps, what are they afraid of? These can be helpful questions if they are asked with curiosity, as in, I wonder why, and without blame, as in, why are they so stupid? I looked at sociological research on reasons why people voted one way or another in the US elections. I also asked people I knew what they felt angry or fearful about regarding matters they hoped their party would address or regarding the opposing party. Here are a few answers pooled from this personal and sociological research and greatly abbreviated. Examples from those who voted Republican. I'm angry that my financial situation hasn't improved for a long, long time. My family and I used to vote Democrat, but those Democrats changed. They started caring about their big money donors and stopped caring about people like us with less income. I'm angry with the Democrats for abandoning us. I'm angry with the whole damn political system I'd like to see the whole thing pulled down. That's why I voted for Donald Trump. He was different. He would disrupt things. We need a big change. I'm upset about abortion. I believe that a baby has a soul at conception and that it is morally wrong to have an abortion. I'm afraid of being controlled by socialists and big government. I want to make my own decisions and not be bogged down in bureaucracy. I don't want higher taxes that would be levied by Democrats. I'm afraid of losing my job and my sense of usefulness as jobs move to lower paid workers in China or to immigrants here. Examples from those who voted Democratic. I'm angry that the 1% continue to get richer and that the 99% continue to get poorer. I'm angry that the Republicans reduce taxes on the rich but don't improve the lot of the 99%. I'm angry that women are paid less than men for the same job. 
I'm angry that Republicans try to control women by taking away support for contraception and by denying a woman's right to control her own body, including the right to choose abortion when it is needed. I'm upset about the environment, that we are making the world a worse place for our children and grandchildren, and that the Republicans are ignoring independent science and selectively listening to deliberately falsified science financed by polluting industries that are major Republican donors. I'm afraid of our checks and balances being overturned as the White House becomes increasingly powerful and disdainful of Congress. I'm afraid that we are moving toward a fascist state. You may argue with any of these statements. Some of them may not seem logical or real to you, especially if they come from the other party. But they are some examples of what people feel. And that matters, because people act on what they feel. Seeing so many different reasons, and there are surely more, may help us abandon the one giant dehumanizing box into which we may be tempted to stuff all opposition voters. They are a bunch of racists. They are lily-livered pacifists living on handouts. When the box is gone, we see human beings with pain and needs and wishes and dreams. Of course, it's also true that these lists of peeves and concerns have been manipulated by political parties. The party apparatus teaches people these positions. Each side tries to enroll potential followers into angry blame of the other side, or fear of what the other side might catastrophically do. It is not easy to remain free of the group pressure of one's political party. It may be tempting to blame those who are manipulated, thinking of them as fools, and this might add to our outrage, as in, how could they get sucked in by that lie? But if we exchange judgment for curiosity, we may find some understanding, and we'll probably feel a whole lot better. Over the last 25 years, I've often wondered why whole populations are so easily persuaded into believing things that are not true, no matter what their level of intelligence. And I've been curious about why anger is so effective at enrolling people into blame. What is it about anger that is both binding and blinding? Anger is so contagious that everyone hearing a speaker's anger about the other group especially if they have rapport with that speaker, may feel the danger of the other group. Because the feeling is real, it seems that the danger must also be real, and therefore the anger seems fully justified. It must be true. I can feel it. In this way, anger can be very effective at cohering one group into action against another group. But anger is not so great on discernment. Anger looks for an enemy to blame, and does not see too well the real cause of its discomfort, just as a swarm of aggravated hornets will sting anything in sight. When anger is set alight, the fire equally consumes a piece of old wood and a Steinway grand piano. Anger disconnects the neurons in our rational forebrains. When anger predominates, we tend to lose our reasoning and it is not always easy to know why we are angry. 
But once we are angry, our anger spreads from person to person, binding whole populations in anger agreements on the terribleness of others. The others, of course, are deeply offended by the accusations and retaliate by being equally or more offensive back. And so it spirals upwards, upward in heat, but not in kindness. In searching for reasons, we may or may not agree with what we find about others' beliefs. But either way, the search puts us in a calmer frame of mind. A search to find the personal, human reasons for why someone makes a decision we don't agree with can change our judgmental stance. Once the them become people with lives and concerns like our own, we no longer see them as the enemy. Then the pain of our own aversive emotional reaction can be transmuted to the more pleasant realms of peacefulness, relaxation, understanding and empathy. And then we can talk to each other again. All we need to do is keep asking ourselves, with kindness and a little wonder, why? Yeah, but why? Curiosity aces otherizing. Thanks for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. Episode 16 is scheduled to come out in two weeks, so subscribe now so you don't miss it. Tune in to hear Richard speak on the relief of seeing the bigger picture. And I'd like to especially thank Luke Sullivan for writing in to let Richard know how much this podcast has been helping him. Luke says... I have listened to the podcast a good number of times as I have been traveling up and down the east coast of Australia. I have found it to be a valued companion where I might rewind something I have heard before and find a new depth and richness to it. I have sent it to many friends and encouraged them to listen as well. I have found the podcast invaluable as the discussion and focus shines a light into these more seldom-seen parts of the individual psyche. That light has been refreshing for me, and in some ways has felt like a companion where others have brought their torches along with my own to try to uncover what lurks beneath. Thank you for the kind words, Luke. And if you'd like to get in touch... You can always reach Richard at superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. And if you have something nice to say about the podcast, feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts or, like Luke, send an episode to a friend. Till next time, stay curious. Stay curious.